We're glad you've joined us on Songs of Praise, an hour of musical reflection to encourage your heart.
sackcloth and ashes I wait at the foot of the cross Have mercy on this dust In you I put my trust For I know your joy will come in the morning And with gladness I'll praise your
I serve a risen Savior, He's in the world today. I know that He is living, whatever men may say. I see His hand of mercy, I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. He lives, He lives, he lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, he lives, he lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He I see His love and care And though my heart grows weary I never will despair I know that He is leading Through all the stormy blast The day of His appearing Will come at last He lives, He lives Christ Jesus lives today He walks with me and talks with me Along life's narrow way he lives, he lives, he lives, he lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Rejoice, rejoice, O Christian, lift up your voice and sing. Eternal hallelujahs to Jesus Christ the King The hope of all who seek Him, the help of all who find None other is so loving, so good and kind He lives, he lives, he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way he lives, he lives, he lives, he lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my
Jesus gave his life for others. This is how we show true love. We should give our life for our brothers. He gave his life for you. Thank you. 
hope you're enjoying Songs of Praise. Here's some more inspirational music.
shall forevermore enjoy the saints and angels song could we with the ocean filled and every sky of Songs of Praise continues with more inspirational music.
famines and earthquakes with trouble all around the heavens did shake no peace could be found there were wars and strife on every hand it seemed God had lost with no of a man's hand. It is the cloud which surrounds the Savior and which seems in the distance to be shrouded in darkness. The people of God know this to be the sign of the Son of Man. In solemn silence, they gaze upon it as it draws nearer the earth, becoming lighter and more glorious until it is a great white cloud, its base a glory like consuming fire, and above it the rainbow of the covenant. Jesus rides forth as a mighty conqueror, not now a man of sorrows to drink the bitter cup of shame and woe. He comes victor in heaven and earth to judge the living and the dead. With anthems of celestial melody, the holy angels, a vast, unnumbered throng, attend him on his way. The firmament seems filled with radiant forms, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. No human pen can portray the scene. No mortal mind is adequate to conceive its splendor. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. As the living cloud comes still nearer, every eye beholds the Prince of Life. No crown of thorns now mars that sacred head, but a diadem of glory rests on his holy brow. His countenance outshines the brightness of the noonday sun, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then just in time, the Savior came. 
the first time you came they crowned you with thorns as on an old rugged cross you were raised but the next
You're listening to Songs of Praise. It's our desire to encourage and uplift your thoughts to our loving Creator God.
is quite enough love for one like me and in this very room there's quite enough joy for one like me and there's quite enough hope and quite enough power to chase away any Jesus Lord Jesus is in this very
again next time on Songs of Praise brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio to enjoy more uplifting music. Welcome to 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading program. The book Christ's Object Lessons written by Ellen White presents the parables of Jesus in a fresh light, showing their application to Christian living today. In this devotional classic, Ellen White explores the depths of the best-loved teachings of Jesus, 
offering a deeply spiritual understanding of the parables of Christ as they apply to our lives today. You'll enjoy the practical applications in a way that touches your heart. Listen now as Clive Nash reads. Teaching in Parables In Christ's parable teaching, the same principle is seen as in his own mission to the world. That we might become acquainted with his divine character in life, Christ took our nature and dwelt among us. Divinity was revealed in humanity, the invisible glory in the visible human form. Men could learn of the unknown through the known. Heavenly things were revealed through the earthly. God was made manifest in the likeness of men. So it was in Christ's teaching. The unknown was illustrated by the known, divine truths by earthly things with which the people were most familiar. The scripture says, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Matthew 13, verses 34 and 35. Natural things were the medium for the spiritual. The things of nature and the life experience of his hearers were connected with the truths of the written word. Leading thus from the natural to the spiritual kingdom, Christ's parables are links in the chain of truth that unites man with God and earth with heaven. In his teaching from nature, Christ was speaking of the things which his own hands had made and which had qualities and powers that he himself had imparted. In their original perfection, all created things were an expression of the thought of God. To Adam and Eve in their Eden home, nature was full of the knowledge of God, teeming with divine instruction. Wisdom spoke to the eye and was received into the heart, for they communed with God in his created works. As soon as the holy pair transgressed the law of the Most High, the brightness from the face of God departed from the face of nature. The earth is now marred and defiled by sin. Yet even in its blighted state, much that is beautiful remains. God's object lessons are not obliterated. Rightly understood, nature speaks of her creator. In the days of Christ, these lessons had been lost sight of. Men had well nigh ceased to discern God in his works. The sinfulness of humanity had cast a pall over the fair face of creation, and instead of manifesting God, his works became a barrier that concealed him. Men worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. Thus the heathen became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Romans 1, 25 and 21. So in Israel, man's teaching had been put in the place of God's. Not only the things of nature, but the sacrificial service and the scriptures themselves, all given to reveal God, were so perverted that they became the means of concealing him. Christ sought to remove that which obscured the truth. The veil that sin had cast over the face of nature, he came to draw aside, bringing to view the spiritual glory that all things were created to reflect. His words placed the teachings of nature as well as of the Bible in a new aspect and made them a new revelation. Jesus plucked the beautiful lily and placed it in the hands of children and youth. 
and as they looked into his own youthful face, fresh with the sunlight of his father's countenance, he gave the lesson, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow in the simplicity of natural beauty. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Then followed the sweet assurance and the important lesson, Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? In the Sermon on the Mount, these words were spoken to others besides children and youth. They were spoken to the multitude, among whom were men and women full of worries and perplexities and sore with disappointment and sorrow. Jesus continued, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Then spreading out his hands to the surrounding multitude, he said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew six twenty-eight to 33 Thus Christ interpreted the message which he himself had given to the lilies and the grass of the field. He desires us to read it in every lily and every spire of grass. His words are full of assurance and tend to confirm trust in God. So wide was Christ's view of truth, so extended his teaching, that every phase of nature was employed in illustrating truth. The scenes upon which the eye daily rests we're all connected with some spiritual truth so that nature is clothed with the parables of the Master. In the earlier part of his ministry, Christ had spoken to the people in words so plain that all his hearers might have grasped truths which would make them wise unto salvation. But in many hearts the truth had taken no root and it had been quickly caught away. Therefore speak I to them in parables, he said, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Matthew thirteen thirteen to 15 Jesus desired to awaken inquiry. He sought to arouse the careless and impress truth upon the heart. Parable teaching was popular, and commanded the respect and attention not only of the Jews, but of the people of other nations. No more effective method of instruction could have been employed. If his hearers had desired a knowledge of divine things, they might have understood his words, for he was always willing to explain them to the honest inquirer. Again, Christ had truths to present which the people were unprepared to accept or even to understand. For this reason also he taught them in parables. By connecting his teaching with the scenes of life, experience, or nature, he secured their attention and impressed their hearts. Afterward, as they looked upon the objects that illustrated his lessons, they recalled the words of the divine teacher. To minds that were open to the Holy Spirit, the significance of the Saviour's teaching unfolded more and more. Mysteries grew clear, and that which had been hard to grasp became evident. 
Jesus sought an avenue to every heart. By using a variety of illustrations, he not only presented truth in its different phases, but appealed to the different hearers. Their interest was aroused by figures drawn from the surroundings of their daily life. None who listened to the Saviour could feel that they were neglected or forgotten. The humblest, the most sinful, heard in his teaching a voice that spoke to them in sympathy and tenderness. And he had another reason for teaching in parables. Among the multitudes that gathered about him, there were priests and rabbis, scribes and elders, Herodians and rulers, world-loving, bigoted, ambitious men, who desired above all things to find some accusation against him. Their spies followed his steps day after day to catch from his lips something that would cause his condemnation and forever silence the one who seemed to draw the world after him. The Saviour understood the character of these men, and he presented truth in such a way that they could find nothing by which to bring his case before the Sanhedrin. In parables, he rebuked the hypocrisy and wicked works of those who occupied high positions, and in figurative language, clothed truth of so cutting a character that had it been spoken in direct denunciation, they would not have listened to his words and would speedily have put an end to his ministry. But while he evaded the spies, he made truth so clear that error was manifested and the honest in heart were profited by his lessons. Divine wisdom, infinite grace were made plain by the things of God's creation. Through nature and the experiences of life, men were taught of God. The invisible things of Him since the creation of the world were perceived to the things that are made, even His everlasting power and divinity. Romans 1.20 In the Saviour's parable teaching is an indication of what constitutes the true higher education. Christ might have opened to men the deepest truths of science. He might have unlocked mysteries which have required many centuries of toil and study to penetrate. He might have made suggestions in scientific lines that would have afforded food for thought and stimulus for invention to the close of time. But he did not do this. He said nothing to gratify curiosity or to satisfy man's ambition for opening doors to worldly greatness. In all his teaching, Christ brought the mind of man in contact with the infinite mind. He did not direct the people to study men's theories about God, his word, or his works. He taught them to behold him as manifested in his works, in his word, and by his providences. Christ did not deal in abstract theories, but in that which is essential to the development of character, that which will enlarge man's capacity for knowing God and increase his efficiency to do good. He spoke to men of those truths that relate to the conduct of life and that take hold upon eternity. It was Christ who directed the education of Israel. Concerning the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Deuteronomy 6, verses 7 to 9. In his own teaching, Jesus showed how this command is to be fulfilled, how the laws and principles of God's kingdom can be so presented as to reveal their beauty and preciousness. 
When the Lord was training Israel to be the special representatives of himself, he gave them homes among the hills and valleys. In their home life and their religious service, they were brought in constant contact with nature and with the Word of God. So Christ taught his disciples by the lake, on the mountainside, in the fields and groves, where they could look upon the things of nature by which he illustrated his teachings. And as they learned of Christ, they put their knowledge to use by cooperating with him in his work. So through the creation, we are to become acquainted with the Creator. The book of nature is a great lesson book, which in connection with the scriptures, we are to use in teaching others of his character and guiding lost sheep back to the fold of God. As the works of God are studied, the Holy Spirit flashes conviction into the mind. It is not the conviction that logical reasoning produces, but unless the mind has become too dark to know God, the eye too dim to see Him, the ear too dull to hear His voice, a deeper meaning is grasped, and the sublime spiritual truths of the written word are impressed upon the heart. In these lessons from nature, there is a simplicity and purity that makes them of the highest value. All need the teaching to be derived from this source. In itself, the beauty of nature leads the soul away from sin and worldly attractions and toward purity, peace, and God. Too often, the minds of students are occupied with men's theories and speculations, falsely called science and philosophy. They need to be brought into close contact with nature. Let them learn that creation and Christianity have one God. Let them be taught to see the harmony of the natural with the spiritual. Let everything which their eyes see or their hands handle be made a lesson in character building. Thus, the mental powers will be strengthened, the character developed, and the whole life ennobled. Join us again next time as Clive Nash continues to read from the book Christ's Object Lessons, written by Ellen G. White. We hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. As the word was preached that Jesus was coming soon, very soon, the movement gained traction and momentum. Whilst there were doubters and scoffers, the numbers of those waiting for Jesus' return swelled. The movement was at its strongest in the northeast of the United States of America, though it was by no means limited to just being an American phenomenon. Before the days of email and internet communications, God's Spirit was moving on different people around the world as they studied His Word and came to similar conclusions. In England, a preacher named Edward Irving proclaimed the soon return of Jesus. In Germany, Johann Bengel. In South America, Manuel de la Cunza. This was a worldwide revival, fulfilling the text in Daniel 12 verse 4 that says, at the time of the end, men would run to and fro and knowledge would be increased. 
knowledge of the Bible, but in particular, knowledge of the books of Daniel and Revelation. The believers initially expected Jesus to return in the spring of 1844, and when he did not, this produced some disappointment, but they were greatly encouraged when Samuel Snow's studies revealed the prophecy pointed towards October the 22nd. This brought great revival amongst the believers as they wanted to put their wrongs right and be ready to meet Jesus when he comes. They wanted their lives to show evidence of their faith. Some sold their houses, others closed their businesses, some farmers left their crops in their fields, and many others got baptized. Charles Fitch was a minister who baptized many people in the autumn of 1844, and unfortunately on one occasion, because there were so many people to baptize, and he spent so long in the chilly New England waters, he caught pneumonia. He died on October the 14th, but due to the faith that he and his family shared in the soon return of Jesus, they believed they would see him in just a few weeks. His obituary would spell this out. The believers in the locality of William Miller's farm gathered on his property to wait for Jesus' return and stood here on this rock, today known as Ascension Rock. They believed they would ascend to heaven. When Jesus did not come, they suffered a bitter disappointment and their hopes were dashed. They had hung their lives on the belief that Jesus was coming soon and now he hadn't. Was their faith in vain? Was it presumption? Could they recover from the embarrassment, ridicule and shame they would face? Henry Emmons later said, I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday, but after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. My natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. Hiram Edson later commented, our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I have never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. The believers would now be challenged to live by faith, to hang on to God and to trust His promises when they didn't know how, to have faith in the moments of darkness and to trust when it doesn't seem to make sense. This would be their test, and it's a test that comes our way as well. Let us remember when it does, that his eye is on the sparrow, and he watches over us in the good times as well as in the tough times. For more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com.